Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen of the Eastern family, tonight's broadcast represents another recording of our great airline's history as told by its people. Many of our stories are taken from publications such as The Wings of Man, The Wings of Many, Repartee, the magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, Pitcairn Newswing, and the Silverliners magazine, and many other books and publications. The jacket or dust cover, as it is sometimes referred to, uh, of the Wings of Man book, which we find many of our stories, states the dedication of the book. It reads, In January 1991, Eastern Airlines, once among America's oldest and largest U.S. airlines, ceased operations. This book recalls some of Eastern's proud history, full of aviation firsts, including the legendary air shuttle between New York, Boston, and Washington, routes to Florida, the Caribbean, and Mexico, 
and the launching of the Boeing 727 and 757 aircraft. Eastern was also a launch customer of the Lockheed L-1011 TriStar and introduced the Airbus A300B, the world's first wide-bodied twin in the United States. During its storied life, Eastern cared for numerous celebrities aboard its famous restaurant flights, replete with Rosenthal China, laden with sumptuous food, and accompanied by beverages. The future president, John F. Kennedy, was photographed being boarded on a stretcher on an eastern constellation at Logan Airport, attended faithfully by eastern stewardesses. First Lady Jackie Kennedy chose Eastern to fly to Acapulco with Babe Ruth and Muhammad Ali were frequent customers. The list is endless. In 1973, President Richard Nixon awarded Eastern service to the Caribbean Islands with its acquisition of Caribair. The airline created a luxury hotel affiliation with Lawrence Rockefeller in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands through Rock Resorts. In addition, Eastern laid the foundation for airport security as we know it today and supported troop movements during World War II and Vietnam. Eastern was the official airline of Walt Disney World. This unique book features many other significant events written by former employees and friends of the airline, joining together again to record for posterity their fond remembrances of the airline. Wonderful photographs from Eastern's archives, as well as those shared by those who wrote about their experiences with the airline, provide the perfect complement. Among the more than 70 stories are recollections about the people who built Eastern, including Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, Floyd Hall, Captain Dick Merrill, Chief Financial Officer Charlie Simons, Vice President Russ Ray, and President Sam Higginbottom. In addition are stories about Eastern's transition from props to the jet era, the fate brought on by deregulation, numerous hijackings, and tragic accidents, including the first fatal accident of a wide-bodied airline, Flight 401, in the Everglades. Also included are recollections of the inauguration of Eastern's Latin America and London routes. Finally, the personal recollections of flight attendants, pilots, and rank-and-file employees from a variety of departments and job functions are featured, many of which have never been previously told. This book is dedicated to all those Eastern Airlines employees who, despite the suffering caused by the often adversarial relationship between the workforce and management during its last years, maintained such a high degree of camaraderie that retiree organizations such as EARA, REPA, and the Silverliners continue to thrive today, 25 years after the bitter shutdown of service. Now, here to read additional stories from this book and other publications that we mention 
are Harry and Linda Lindquist. Harry was a former pilot crew scheduler. I'm Neil Holland, assisting in the broadcast as producer and the host of the show. I was a former pilot based in Atlanta for most of my career with Eastern. We hope you enjoy these memories shared by the authors of the stories. Harry or Linda, let's get started with tonight's episode. Here's a look back at the life of an airline pilot as described by an airline pilot. This is from a 1978 edition of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association magazine, Repartee. The article is a scientific diagnosis of airline flying. <clears throat> airline flying is the sedentary existence accompanied by moments of intense consternation. It is indulged in by various male characters who live in towns they don't like, fly to places that they don't want to go and occasionally can't find, over a route which is completely uninteresting. The sole purpose of the trip is so the return journey could be made the following day. There is no other reason. The entire process is repeated periodically. Two of these male characters go on each trip. There's a senior character and a junior character. The senior character sits in the left seat and tries to maintain an air of cool, calm, resourcefulness, and competence. He doesn't talk much unless he feels like it. He looks straight ahead. The junior character sits in the right seat. His mannerisms are frequently touched with hesitancy and uncertainty. A wild look occasionally enters his eye. His palms are sometimes moist. He doesn't talk much either, even when he does, does feel like it. He looks over at the senior character frequently and hopefully, usually to no avail. The chief requirement for the proficiency in this peculiar profession is the ability to sleep when you are not tired, then later stay awake when you are tired as heck. Everything else is easy. Fresh air is very bad for these junior characters. However, the senior characters always protects him by sleeping in the bed by the window, thereby effectively blocking the entrance of that highly undesirable element. This protection is also amplified to include testing the shower first, precedence of egress and ingress through all doors, portals, cellars, taxicabs, and airplanes. It is magnanimous of the senior character to provide this protection in view of the fact that they pay the same for all such items of service. A junior character was once heard to mutter, General Sherman must have been a co-pilot when he made his famous remark about war. Most of these characters live with, and quite frequently, are married to a female character. She usually greets him upon his return from a tough trip with, Why the blank blank don't you get on number 16 and 17? It pays one hundred two fifty a round trip. Art Flea is on it, and you're a senior to him, and they're having their downstairs carpeted. There are many hobbies. Some buy farms intended to be gentlemen farmers, cheerfully overlooking the fact that they are unqualified by inclination and training to be either a gentleman or a farmer. Many buy expensive woodworking equipment, start to build furniture. This hobby is usually short-lived due to running out of fingers and thumbs. The most popular, however, is studying the seniority list. A seniority list is a compendium of names and numbers representing all the characters on the airline. It is composed of good guys and louses. The ratio of good guys to louses is, of course, contingent upon the viewpoint of the interested character. In other words, everyone with a number lower than his is a louse. Everyone with a number higher than his is a charming citizen. 
Then there are the senior senior characters. They can be identified by graying temples, high foreheads, a cool reserved attitude, and much dignity. As a rule, they don't stir around much during the day, preferring to remain in their accustomed haunts until the cool of the evening or until at least 6 p.m. They are very active during the night, but disappear shortly after 6 a.m. the following morning. No one has ever seen one during the heat of the day. These nocturnal characters are substantial citizens, usually owning large homes and small families. Their love for both is second only to their passion for conducting all their aeronautical activities between the hours of 6 p.m. and 6 a.m. Mighty puzzling. Tempts one to stay up all night sometime. All in all, it's an amazing business. This character is now going to get his seniority list out and study it carefully. Might be senior to art play at that. Well, what the hell? We'll carpet the whole joint. This winter, you need all the summer you can get. Eastern Airlines' new personalized vacation planning, you can have a vacation as unique as you are. Talk to your travel agent or call the airline that's working harder for your dollar. Get the most summer this winter from Eastern, the wings of man. How I Got Here, The Ups and Downs in Fulfilling My Dreams by Javine Dobson. When I was born in 1946 in McRae, Georgia, not far from the city of Jacksonville, Florida, I became the princess of the family. You see, I was the only daughter in a family of boys. So, being the first was something with which I was quite familiar. But nothing could have prepared me for becoming one of the first black stewardesses or flight attendants at Eastern Airlines. The date that I completed my training and embarked on my career, December 13, 1966, is a day that will remain etched in my mind forever. There were only three black women in my training class, and only two of us made it through the rigorous, intensive studies that were subsequently, and were subsequently presented with our wings. It's hard to believe that it's been nearly 50 years because I still remember it like it was yesterday. I flew for 24 years and loved every minute of it. When Eastern closed its doors in 1991, it was one of the saddest days of my life, but life went on and I continued to cherish memories of many amazing adventures. When my family moved to Miami when I was about 10 years old, I already had a real love for airplanes. I would often dream about traveling all over the world. But I remember my mama telling me that the only the rich could expect some such things to come true. Meanwhile, my world in Miami was one where blacks and whites lived, worked, and were educated and played in very separate places. Segregation was still the law of the land, and my brothers and I experienced it firsthand. There were drinking fountains and bathrooms and beaches that prominently featured signs that read white only or colored only. When I asked my mother why such things were necessary, she would simply say, that's just the way it is. But even then, I recall not being very satisfied with her response. In 1964, I graduated from Miami Northwestern Senior High School and chose to matriculate at Florida State University. Unfortunately, the cost of my education was too much for my family to handle, and I was forced to end my studies after one year. 
I then tried my hand as an x-ray technician and completed studies that would allow me to become gainfully employed in that profession. But talk about boring. I knew I couldn't do that for the rest of my life. All the while, there was a constant tugging at my heart. I still yearned to travel, to see the world, and to experience life where my color wasn't seen as a liability. Then one day, I was reading the Miami Herald and came across a one ad. National Airlines was looking for stewardesses, and I quickly completed an application. My interview, if you can call it that, was pretty simple. I walked around a room in a bathing suit. Then they thanked me for my time and told me they would call me in a couple of weeks. I never heard from National again, but I was not to be deterred. Several weeks later, I saw another advertisement. This time it was from Eastern Airlines. I had learned my lesson from being quickly dismissed by National before being allowed to show them that I was up for the job. So I contacted the Urban League in Miami and sought out its president, T. Willard Fair. We did some strategizing, and actually he told me how to prepare, and I followed his advice. When I walked into the interviews, there were about 500 people, but I was strangely confident. What amazed me most was seeing so many beautiful women all in one place. There were very few women of color, but I didn't care. I took a deep breath, prayed to my God, and waited. Finally, they called my name, and the interview process began. Again, I was asked to put on a pair of high heel shoes, a pillbox hat, and to walk across the room. I think I must have glided, and I remember that they looked up in surprise, seeing that I had grace, poise, and an air of elegance. Yes, my mother had taught her baby girl how to be a lady. When asked why I wanted to become a stewardess, I said that I loved people, and I believed that I had the kind of personality that made others feel comfortable. And I believe that, and I believe that has always been one of my more positive traits. I also emphasized that I got along well with just about everyone. Finally, I shared a more personal reason, that I wanted to realize my dream of traveling all over the world, and I was determined to smile my way from one country and continent to another. I made the cut, and soon I began the grueling training class, eight hours a day, five days a week. We were constantly checked for whether our gloves were white, if our shoes and nails were polished, and if our hair was stylishly coiffed. And then there was the added rigor of daily examinations. There's a lot you had to learn in order to safely carry out the job as stewardess. I never realized it until I began the training. We were required to maintain a test average of 97.9%. Not an easy feat, but I did it. Upon my graduation, my first few flights were something that I would rather forget, but they became a real learning experience for me and tested my faith in God and my belief in my own abilities. I was working flights that were primarily based in the southern portion of the United States, and early in the 1960s, a colored stewardess was a rare sight indeed. Some passengers simply came out and refused to be served by anyone that looked like me. Prejudice was alive and well in those days, and I suppose it was even politically correct. During some flights, I was told by my supervisors to sit things out and stay away from some of the irate customers. I, mem I remember crying a lot and asking my mother what I should do. 
She told me that God would never let me down and to remain steadfast in pursuing my dreams. So I did just that. Along the way, I developed some lifelong friendships with other young white women and men that cared more about who I was than my skin color. To a great extent, Eastern became part of my extended family. Ironically, I had a fear of flying. But given the length of my career, it's clear that I was able to overcome it. I endured the hardship and the heartache of racism and prejudice, and while I did not come out unscathed, I made it through the fire. Yes, I earned my wings, and I was proud of it. My favorite two songs are the Otis Redding classic, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, and Sam's Cook, A Change is Gonna Come. As I took to the skies dressed in my Eastern uniform, I wanted to be part of the change that Cook sang about, and I was tired of sitting on the dock of the bay, watching the tide roll away. I refused to let my life go by without having at least made the effort to achieve my dreams. There were times when the fear all but paralyzed me, and there were the hateful insults, wisecracks, innuendos, and blatant confrontations from passengers and co-workers, but I was determined to never let them get the best of me. We flew together, we bowled together, and sometimes when there were tragedies, we mourned together. As the years went by, other African Americans joined the ranks of, as flight attendants, as we would eventually be called. Men were hired to fly with us as well. I began to travel the world just as I always dreamed, and in every country and city I made new friends, found new loves in a few instances, and saw places I had only dreamed about. What a wonderful life Eastern Airlines offered me. Who says dreams can't come true? Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern Shuttle has always been very efficient, but it's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. Let's go back and take a look at the early days of airline uh, navigation in commercial airplanes. This article is taken from the February 1934 issue of Eastern's Air Transport Newswing, and it was later republished in the book The Wings of Many. The article is Invisible Sky Highways by S.J. Henry, Jr. Let us look in a moment on the airline pilot at work and see how he goes about this strange business of beating the weather. We're winging our way over eastern Pennsylvania, the Delaware River on our left. At this time of year, fog and low ceilings are common in this region. Through the heavy ground haze, we can dimly see many historic landmarks as we fly over Philadelphia. As the city recedes in the murk, our pilots decide to go higher to take advantage of more favorable winds. At 1,200 feet, we enter the first cloud layer. Soon we are merged in the sea of mist, its soft gray light revealing the engine nacelles. The vague outline of wingtips, nothing more. Our view cut off by fog above and below. We turn our attention forward. You have probably wondered about all those instruments in the cockpit of your transport plane. They may be divided into general class, two general classes, engine and airplane performance indicators. 
There is an instrument for every possible purpose. They tell the pilot everything you must know about the condition of his plane. Engine instruments are required and quite necessary, but they play a comparatively small part in blind flight. Here, airplane performance indicators do the real job. Look at the altimeter. It registers 3,500 feet and still climbing. Now we are right in the clouds, and perhaps the pilots will take us on top, that is, on top of the clouds, for the most glorious sight ever imagined. We note the artificial horizon on the instrument board. The little figure of an airplane, seeming to float in its blue, globe-shaped dial, hovers slightly above the horizon centerline. That line represents the actual horizon, seen in straight and level flight. The position of the tiny model corresponds exactly to the plane's attitude of flight, and thus the pilot knows even in fog whether he is flying up or down, turning left or right. There comes a momentary break in the clouds, slipping by in a haze. We check the airspeed indicator. It shows 120 miles an hour. Hard to believe when we seem to be floating motionless on the mist, but true. We have leveled off on the airway and high above the dripping earth, unseen, scarcely heard, unable to see anything beyond our cabin. We are winging a swift, sure course to our destination, 100 miles away. The men in the cockpit sit quietly, attentive only to instruments, which reveal to their practiced eye the whole story of the flight. Any attempt to describe blind flying in the cold, hard light of analysis must be approached with due respect, not only to the readers hereof, but for the real pioneers who developed the art. To many who understand its theory and realize the physical difficulties, its practice is still a mystery akin to magic. For many experienced passengers, flight through, above clouds, is merely a delightful method of travel. That is what the airlines intend it should be. But little thought is given to the skill required. The long practice which every good pilot must have are to the, two, or to the many scientific aids provided for overcoming the menace of bad weather. Instrument flying, to give it a more accurate name, is comparatively new to achievement in aviation but it serves to prove and yet disprove one conception much older than flight. Man is a perfect machine. That is obviously an exaggeration. Man is only the most versatile machine. When it comes to perfection, he must, know, he must bow to the real machines of iron and steel which he has created. Moreover, strangest fact of all, although man can fairly trust in the reliability of his machines, he cannot trust his own senses that have served to build them. Modern aircraft instruments offer an excellent and original field in the old dispute of man versus the machine. Pilots who know their planes far better than you know your car will tell you that when flying blind, manufactured instruments are superior to man. Having had many opportunities to test their own judgment against the evidence, they count very little on their own sensations. Take the gadget's advice in a pinch, they say. Its dictates are rarely wrong. Instruments register facts, and airlines prefer facts to fancy. This quality of exact science, of instrument precision rather than human snap judgment, is building for the nation's airlines an operation record second to none. Blind flying has become a common practice. Every airline pilot is now required to pass a rigid flight test. He must also fly a total of 25 years, 25 hours a year in a hooded cockpit, proving his ability to navigate by instrument alone. 
He must know the art of riding the beam, as pilots term the unerring charting of a course along the path of the radio beacon. And we'll hear some more about that beam in the next part of this series about the early days of navigation and aviation. Stay tuned for part two. Continue with part two of Captain Eddie Crashes on Eastern Flight 21. It was dawn before a search party reached the crash site. Rickenbacker was in untold agony. His pelvis was smashed, a nerve in his fractured left hip severed, his ribs broken, some in three places, and he sustained serious head injuries. Included in the first rescue group was John Halliburton, who was based in Atlanta at the time. A dispatcher had called him with the news that Flight 21 was down with Captain Eddie aboard. I'm going to insert here a short article from Wikipedia about this crash listing the injuries to Captain Eddie. He suffered a dented skull, other head injuries, shattered left elbow and crushed nerve, paralyzed left hand, several broken ribs, a crushed hip socket, twice broken pelvis, severed nerve in his left hip, and a broken left knee. Most shocking, his left eyeball was expelled from the socket. He recovered from these after months in the hospital and regained full eyesight. I wouldn't have given a plug nickel for his living another 24 hours, he said grimly. One eye was hanging out of its socket all the way down to his cheekbone. It was lucky we found the plane just when it began to get light. Farmers in our search group were carrying kerosene lanterns and the ground was saturated with the gas. We put Captain Eddie on a stretcher with a de defective catch. It was the folding kind and kept coming loose. I can still remember him cussing, even though he was only semi-conscious. Some bastard of a newspaper photographer shoved a camera in his face just as we got him on the stretcher, but he never got a chance to snap a picture. Somebody from Eastern, I don't know who, Damn near knocked him off the ridge where the plane had hit. Rickenbacker was alert enough to notice that the first ambulance to arrive was loaded with the bodies of the dead. What the hell is going on here? He mumbled through swollen lips. They're taking corpses when they've got injured people to move. Halliburton said he didn't know, but someone else volunteered the information that the state law allowed a $20 fee for transporting dead bodies, but only $10 for live ones. Rickenbacker and the other injured had to wait an hour for the second ambulance, and the doctor accompanying the search party finally gave him two shots of morphine to ease the excruciating pain. All the injured were taken to Atlanta's Piedmont Hospital. 
and then turned, took one look at Rickenbacker and ordered the stretcher barriers to move him out of the way. He's more dead than alive, he ruled. Let's work on the live ones first. Rickenbacker was so weak he couldn't open his mouth to protest until a priest came into the emergency room and asked a nurse if the captain was Catholic. EVR figured he was about to receive the last rites, and with that his speech came back. I'm a damn Protestant, like 90% of the people, he protested. He was to spend four months and two days in Piedmont, and for the first ten days was given up for dead. Rickenbacker had always been convinced of the benefits of osteopathy, and he refused to let surgeons operate on his crushed hip so badly smashed that the ball of the joint had splintered the socket, leaving his left leg four inches shorter than the right. Until he was able to take osteopathic treatment, he remained in such pain that morphine was the only relief, and at one dark point he decided that the agony was professed preferable to becoming an addict. The drug had caused periods of hallucinations that frightened him. Once, when his two sons were in the room, he invited them to take some of the grapes and cherries he saw hanging from a bar over his head. His oldest boy, David, looked at him with mixed bewilderment and fear. I don't see any grapes or cherries, Dad, he told his father. This and other moments of delirium led to his finally ordering Dr. Floyd McRae, Piedmont's chief surgeon, to quit giving me morphine. Eddie, you won't be able to stand the pain, McRae warned. The hell with the pain. Promise me. No more drug. I'll take you off morphine for 24 hours, the doctor compromised, but you'll regret it. Only Rickenbacker's willpower pulled him through that particular crisis. The entire staff marveled at his will to live. He was an obstreperous, cantankerous patient, especially when he was hallucinating and imagined that the doctors and nurses were mistreating him, but they had to admire his iron courage. While he was hovering between life and death, Adelaide turned on the radio in his room and Rickenbacker heard Walter Winchell's staccato voice. Flash, Atlanta. It's confirmed that Eddie Rickenbacker is dying and is not expected to live another hour. Adelaide started to laugh, but Rickenbacker didn't think it was funny. He grabbed a water pitcher and fired it at the radio. Glass, tubes, knobs, water, and splintered wood flew all over the floor. His wife knew then he simply refused to die. He walked with a limp for the rest of his life, the irreparable residue from a smashed hip, and his once ramrod straight frame had a slight but permanent stoop. The severed hip nerve prevented him from putting any pressure on his left leg, so he gave up driving a car. A rather minor penalty, inasmuch as this veteran of hundreds of high-speed automobile races had never bothered to attain a driver's license. For that matter, he never had a pilot's license either. His convalescence took longer than he expected or wanted. He had hoped to go back to work full-time by September, but he was constantly in pain, and not until late fall was he able to go to his office for even a few hours a day. The telephone became his only contact with the airline during the long summer, and he talked frequently with Bertain and Shannon, who kept him posted on problems, programs, and policy decisions, most of the latter, it must be added, being kept on the back burner until his return. I would have to say Captain Eddie was a tough old bird. us to a place where the cold ends and the warm begins. Eastern's winter wonderland. It starts in Florida and follows the sun to the Bahamas and Puerto Rico, where white is the color of warm sand, not cold snow. To Jamaica, where fish climb rocks 
our saga of Eastern Airlines during World War II. This will be the third and final part of this three-part series. For anyone assigned to the MTD, last were few, the work hard, and the hours long. A 15 or 16-hour day was the norm, not the exception. The flight crews didn't pull duty to that extent, but they had their own brand of fatigue and tension. No pilot who ever flew the Natal Ascension leg can never forget the difficulties of finding a dot in the middle of the ocean with no other land within 700 miles and the nearest alternate landing strip at least a thousand miles away. Navigation was celestial and by dead reckoning. Plus, on more than one occasion, the power of prayer. A mistake of a couple of degrees meant a flight would miss ascension and make a ditching inevitable. But even this strain was no worse than over the rest of the route where a forced landing gave one a choice between the ocean and the jungle. But there were compensations, the chief one being the knowledge that MTD was not only a way to help win the war, was infinitely better than getting shot at. Plus the discovery so many provincially smug Americans had made when exposed to life and other than a prosperous democracy. There is a human urge for dignity and pride, no matter how primitive or uneducated a man may be. The MTD contingent met such people and gave them dignity through jobs. The station managers, whose chief duty was to serve as liaison men between the airline and the army, hired South American natives for about 30 cents a day. To many of them, the pay was secondary to the satisfaction of working around airplanes. It gave them a sense of responsibility and importance they had never known before and quite possibly would never know again. Wooten remembers one tall, dark-skinned native who seemed lackadaisical until the station manager gave him a title, Jeffy dos Los Lavatorios. From then on, he literally strutted through his chores, many although they were. His translated title was Supervisor of Lavatories, which meant that like David Rickenbacker, he was cleaning the honey buckets. At Borkunfield, a young Puerto Rican was assigned the task of waking up the flight crews overnighting in the barracks. Some of them, worn out by hours of tough flying, would have slept through a major earthquake. The youngster would shine a flashlight in their faces and shake them until they opened their eyes, but this often proved inadequate. A weary pilot would fall back to sleep after the boy left and then would blame him for almost missing his flight. A few such scoldings forced him to take drastic action. He would draw up a list of those to be awakened and the next morning and take it with him when he made his before-dawn rounds. The minute a pilot stirred into semi-consciousness, the boy would deliver the one English sentence he had memorized. Signed a paper. The flashlight stayed on until his bleary-eyed man had signed next to his name, and if he went back to sleep, the alarm clock was in the clear of any negligence. 
Eastern C-46 has hauled anything that could be fitted into a commando's cavernous, dirigible-shaped hulk, including, on one occasion, a disassembled Army observation plane. The cargo ranged from a $750,000 cash payroll to Madison, vaccine, and blood plasma. The story of World War II was written as the MTD Manifest, cryptograph machines, spare engines, ammunition, guns, food, mail, soap, and technical specialists whose presence was needed in some combat zone in a hurry. One flight carried railroad engineers bound for Iran, and another had to board sappers, men trained to detect landmines. The return flights didn't come back empty. They hauled mica and quartz crystals from Brazil to the U.S. when a shortage of these critical materials threatened hot production of radio and radar tubes. They flew tons of crude rubber, captured German equipment to be tested and evaluated by U.S. ordnance experts, and Army ferry pilots going back to pick up more planes. The latter often performed their ferrying operations over Eastern's MTD route, but their safety record was alarming. They were young and inexperienced with very little instrument training. And for a time, scores of them were victims of violent and usually unexpected tropical storms they were ill-equipped to handle. Army officials discussed the problem with MTD personnel, and the result was the use of Eastern's planes as weather ships. Many southbound flights began carrying Army weather observers, radioing their first-hand in-route weather information back to ferry bases. If there was no Army observer aboard, EAL's own radio operators provided weather data to military aircraft in the area, and if a ferry pilot needed an up-to-date report, he could call the nearest eastern plane. In only two weeks after the program went into effect, the ferry accident rate dropped dramatically and stayed low for the duration of ferry operations over the route. Impressed, the Army also contracted with Eastern to operate a school in Atlanta for military pilots, navigators, and flight mechanics. Nearly 1,200 men went through the school, which included instrument and transitional training for pilots. A subsequent on-the-job training program qualified almost 800 pilots to fly heavy cargo planes. Eastern's wartime educational assignments involved one unusual task, giving additional training to none other than Pan American's veteran crews. One of the instructors was an EAL Captain Ernie Burton, now a highly successful home builder in Miami and the Washington area, who gives a logical explanation of why it was necessary to work with men who had far more ocean flying experience than any Eastern pilot. The trouble, Burton says, was that Pan Am had been operating mostly big flying boats, which always had to take off or land in daylight. Nothing was more dangerous than moving a seaplane in water at night where you might never see a half-submerged log. The Pan Am guys were damn good, but few of them had done much flying, night flying, and for the very reason they hadn't had a great deal of instrument experience. When the war came and Pan Am began operating its own military cargo, cargo missions with land planes, we had to teach their crews a few things in operational areas with which they were unfamiliar. It was no reflection on Pan Am, just a fact of life they had to face. More than the MTD went to war from Eastern, of course. By 1944, there were more than 800 employees in uniform, not including the Military Transport Division. The first gold star went up in memory of Roger Owen, 27, 
a former reservations clerk in New York who was killed in combat while with the Royal Canadian Air Force. By the end of the war, EAL's gold stars totaled 42. After a long business trip, the last thing you need is a hassle at the airport. That's why Eastern has one-time check-in. It's like going from the curb directly to your plane. Because Eastern can give you boarding passes for your entire trip the first time you check in. One-time check-in. Eastern's way of wishing you many happy returns. Do you ever get a craving for a candy bar? Say, in particular, a Three Musketeers bar. Now, what's a Three Musketeers cost these days at the store? Maybe $1.25? Why did a Three Musketeers bar cost back in the 1970s? Maybe a quarter? Well, this Three Musketeers bar was worth a lot more than that. It was actually worth the lives of 87 passengers and five crewmen. Let's hear this story. This is from the book, The Wings of Man. It was by J.P. Vandersloos. It's entitled, A Shuttle Flight That Could Have Ended in Disaster. Eastern Airlines began to acquire jet aircraft in the 1960s, which meant it had an excess of prop-driven aircraft. The president of Eastern, Malcolm A. McIntyre, came up with an interesting idea. He proposed an air shuttle operation between New York and Boston and New York and Washington. Airplanes would leave on the hour with no reservations required, and tickets would be paid for on board. The aircraft, 95-seat Lockheed Super Constellations, were first used on the shuttle. Uniquely, if 96 people showed up for a flight, another aircraft and crew were available to carry that person to their destination. Also, if the aircraft was filled before departure time, it would leave early, and a second section would leave at the published schedule. During busy times, it was not unusual for three sections to be flown. Of course, to keep aircraft and crews balanced at each terminal, it required standby crews and aircraft that often ferried empty to have the equipment and crews available for extra sections. Normally, New York would have between six and eight standby crews and aircraft. This service was very popular with businessmen traveling between the three cities. The Eastern Air Shuttle continued until sold to Donald Trump in 1986. Late in the 1960s, Eastern had a rash of hijackings and installed metal detectors at the busiest gates and jetways. On a Sunday night late in the 1970s, I was flying the DC-9 on the Air Shuttle with co-pilot Bill Teterman. We had made one and a half trips to Boston, and we were scheduled to fly the 2200 shuttle to New York. On arriving in Boston, our normal gate was occupied by another aircraft, so we parked at a little-used gate. Upon deplaning, we took the air stairs on the jetway so we would not have to go by the passengers. We walked through the baggage area to operations. I was hungry, and I knew there was a candy vending machine there. After signing the paperwork, Bill and I went to get some Three Musketeers chocolate bars, but the machine was empty because it was Sunday. I said to Bill, let's go upstairs and hit the county candy, county candor the pa passengers use. There, I purchased my candy bar for 25 cents. As we walked to our gate past the passengers, we both noticed one with a hat and top coat who looked like he was falling asleep on his feet. 
His eyes were closed, and he would start to fall over and then catch himself. It was September and very warm, and we remarked about the man as we boarded the jetway to the aircraft. At this time, we had to wear our hats and jackets any time within view of the passengers. After boarding our aircraft, I took off my jacket and hat and got into the left seat and put on my seat belt. The agent working the flight had not yet started to board the passengers. While I was sitting in the pilot seat, something told me, Captain, you are responsible for this aircraft and all the souls on board. I got up, put my jacket and hat back on, and went into the terminal. For a few minutes, I studied the unusual passenger. The agent working the flight, who was preparing to load the aircraft, came up to me. I told him about this passenger, and he agreed he was acting strangely. Either he was sick, drunk, or on drugs, I thought. The agent said if the guy had money, we had to take him. I said no, he was not to board the aircraft. Would I take him if the agent had the passenger checked out by a U.S. Marshal? I said yes, and went back on board the aircraft. Our passenger started to board, and near the end of the line, I heard what sounded like a bass drum going off about five times. The agent come, came running into the aircraft and said the marshal wanted to see me. I ran up the jetway and saw two Massachusetts troopers dragging this passenger with hands handcuffs behind him out on the toes of his shoes. The marshal was nicely dressed in a suit with his badge pinned to his coat pocket. I asked him what was the loud noise we had heard just before the agent called me. He said he stopped the suspect and showed him his badge. The passenger swung at him even though the two state troopers were standing with him. With that, the troopers grabbed the passenger and threw him against the sides of the metal jetway several times until he was unconscious. He asked me how I identified this guy and I told him about the hat and coat and falling asleep on his feet. The marshal said I really picked a bad one and reached into his pocket and pulled out a plastic bag with some kind of powder and hypodermic syringe plus pills. That's not all. Look at this. And held up a plastic bag with a snub-nosed revolver loaded with 38 caliber bullets. I flew the return trip to New York with no problems. The next day I was on the same trip and saw one of the state troopers who had arrested the man the night before. I asked him about the individuals and he told me. I just came from headquarters and the suspect was in a holding tank and having violent withdrawal from drugs. He asked me how I picked him out, and I told him. The guy had been out of prison for only a few days, he added. Nothing more was heard about this incident until December. As my wife and I were about to sit down to dinner, the phone rang, and the caller identified himself as with the FBI in Boston. He offered to give me a number I could call back to verify his authenticity. I said no. I believed him, and he verified it was the Eastern captain on the flight in September. The FBI agent told me that the suspect had been deeply involved in drugs and crime all his life, having spent almost 30 of his 45 years in prison. He had been arrested for many offenses, the last being attempted murder. Almost every day since his arrest, the suspect had been interrogated. He had no money or credit cards on him. The FBI agent wanted to know if I could identify the suspect. I would be willing to try, but he had his eyes closed and the hat pulled down low on his forehead. I guess he was going to hijack us as he had no money to pay for his ticket. The agent replied, We were stymied as to his plans and thought of a different reason. I don't want to alarm you, Captain, but this is what we found. At this time, different insurance companies were offering individual trip insurance for sale by machine in the terminal. 
the FBI checked with the insurance company that had a vending machine at our terminal and discovered the suspect had purchased $75,000 worth of life insurance, leaving it to a prostitute. When the suspect was shown the insurance printouts, he finally admitted that he was going to murder me and my co-pilot to commit suicide. I often think the 87 passengers and five crew members don't know how lucky they are that I needed that Three Musketeers candy bar that day. Eastern Airlines presents a flight of imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. Wow. It's been another evening listening to the fascinating stories and memories of a great airline, Eastern. We have plenty more to come during this series of broadcasts, and we hope you are enjoying reliving the times we spent with this legendary company of men and women, keeping the great fleet of aircraft in the air and making it one of the largest carriers in the free world. There are so many stories still out there that we want to share with you. It can be one of your stories or memories, if you would only tell us. You can do that by writing your story and emailing it to us so that it can be read during one of our future broadcasts. You can email it to enealholland at yahoo.com. That's eneal, N-E-A-L, holland at yahoo.com. And we'll do the rest. Of course, we'll let you know when it will be broadcast. You can also record it in your own voice and send to us at the same email address, eneilholland at yahoo.com. It must be sent in an MP3 file. Most computers will default recording the recordings in that format or a WAV file. These are the only two formats of voice recordings that our broadcasting server will accept. If you want more information about how to do the recordings, you can call me, Neil Holland, at 904-866-8114, and I'll be happy to walk you through the process. It's very easy, and you'll be sharing more of your memories of our beloved airlines in our broadcast. You'll be taking part in telling the story of Eastern Airlines. Well, that's about all we have for you tonight. And on behalf of Harry, Linda, and myself, we hope you'll be back for more Memories of a Great Airline Eastern next week at the same time, 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and station blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. Now, good night, Eastern family. We'll see you next week.